This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. Their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. By November 1st, 2006, Carrie Nickel was worried. She hadn't heard from her 19-year-old daughter, Tanya, since she'd left their house just two nights earlier, on October 30th, just before 11 p.m. The family lived on the outskirts of Ipswich, the biggest town in the county of Suffolk, in the east of Anglia region of southeast England. Tanya told Carrie she was catching the bus into town to hang out with friends, The fact Tanya hadn't been in contact since then gave Carrie further cause to be concerned. She'd known for some time that Tanya was injecting heroin, and at one stage had even found syringes in her bedroom. Tanya said that the syringes always belonged to a friend and always denied having a drug problem. But it hadn't always been this way. Born in Brighton in 1987 to Carrie and Jim, 
Tanya readily made friends as a youngster. She did well at school in the Pinewood area of Ipswich, where her family moved after she was born. Jim described his daughter as caring, articulate, outgoing, and popular. Tanya never got into trouble and enjoyed attending Girl Guides meetings. After Jim and Carrie separated, Tanya moved with her mother and younger brother to a housing estate on Wolverston Close. In her early teens, while attending Chantry High School, Tanya started mixing with people her parents would have considered an undesirable influence. Tanya's boyfriend at the time smoked marijuana, and soon Tanya was too. When she was 16, Tanya decided to leave school and move out of home. She moved into a hostel and started using heavier drugs like heroin and cocaine. Tanya sought help for her drug dependency and moved from job to job. At one stage, she worked at an Ipswich hotel and also tried her hand selling Avon cosmetics. But the pool of addiction was strong. Tanya soon found that sex work paid the money she needed to fund her habit, which was a liability in more ways than one. Tanya was fired from a job at a massage parlor after she was suspected of being a drug user. She joined a group of around 30 to 40 street sex workers who worked the red light district of Ipswich, located to the west of the town. Unbeknownst to her family, Tanya became a street sex worker, but led her family to believe she was working in a pub or at a hairdresser. Carrie later told the Guardian newspaper that Tanya moved back home in December 2005 to allow her to stop using drugs, but Tanya's health didn't improve, and even though she continued to stay out late at night, she always contacted Carrie every night to let her know where she was. Sometimes she stayed out with friends and didn't come home until the next day, which is why Carrie was so troubled when Tanya didn't return home on October 31st. Or call later, with little information to go on, police had Carrie make a public appeal for anyone who had seen Tanya to come forward. Police had found no incoming or outgoing activity on Tanya's phone records from November 1st onwards. It was possible she could have had a dead battery, but it had been a week since anyone had seen her. There were conflicting reports that she was last seen around 12.30 a.m. on October 31st in Burlington Road and also outside Sainsbury's petrol station in London Road. Either way, Tanya had last been spotted in the red light district, but hadn't been seen again. Now, let's get on with it. The port town of Ipswich was known throughout Suffolk, and indeed the rest of the United Kingdom, for being relatively safe. In the mid-2000s, rates of violent crime in the town of 120,000 people were low, with an average of six to seven murders per year. But Class A drug use was problematic, like many cities around the world. Women in Ipswich who were in the grip of addictions to heroin and crack cocaine as a way to deal with the ongoing effects of childhood abuse and trauma often found themselves turning to street sex work in the town's red light district to support their habit. After dark, street sex workers could be seen out and about near Portman Road Football Stadium and on the surrounding residential streets of Hanford Road, London Road, and West End Road. Once a client had been solicited, business usually occurred 
at a 10 to 15 minute drive outside the local area. Up to industrial estates around Hadley Road at Cop Dock, just outside Ipswich. The town street sex workers looked out for each other as best as they could. They stayed in touch throughout the night by text, warning each other about unusual clients. And if the police were patrolling certain streets, many of the women were friends, and at the very least were acquainted with the other women who worked in the area. It was hardly an ideal security arrangement, but for the small community of women, it was the best option they felt they had. The legalities of sex work in Britain are somewhat murky. Sex work itself is legal, but the advertising of such services, street sex work and keeping of brothels, which is defined as an establishment where more than one individual is providing paid sexual services, are all considered offenses. Given the activities associated with the provision of sex work are partially criminalized, the women engaged in such work are extremely vulnerable on several fronts. According to the British Home Office, up to 95% of sex workers have a history of drug and alcohol abuse. The lure of quick cash to feed their drug dependency means they're locked into a vicious cycle of engaging in high-risk work. To maintain what can quickly grow into a financially unsustainable habit, this is despite the health risks that accompany injecting drug use, including overdosing or having a bad hit, as well as brothels and other establishments like massage parlors do not tolerate drug use amongst their employees. This also removes the safer option of sex workers providing their services indoors. Brothels are themselves considered illegal, so any woman operating indoors in pairs or groups for safety reasons are deterred from doing so. As a result, women turn to the streets solo to ply their trade. Here, they are not only at an extremely high risk of sexual assault, up to 85% of street workers often experience violence while working. Many see no point in reporting their assaults to police, as they fear prosecution and judgment for having engaged in an illegal activity in the first place. Instead of being treated as survivors of trauma, who are provided with assistance and information to help them safely exit sex work, they are treated as criminals. A 2018 study published in the British Medical Journal notes that when street sex workers receive fines from the courts, as many do, they simply return to the streets to earn the money to pay it, and the cycle of work, score, use, continues. Gemma Adams was the middle of three children, born in 1981 to her parents, Brian and Gail. Raised in a loving and supportive environment, Gemma grew up in the town of Kesgrave, on the outskirts of Ipswich. As a child, Gemma was popular, caring, strong-willed, and talkative. Her favorite pastimes were playing the piano, horse riding, and participating in her local brownies unit. The junior version of the Girl Guides, Gemma's mother Gail, later recalled for the Guardian how her daughter had a natural affinity for wanting to care for those who were in need. One day when Gemma was a teenager, she rescued an abandoned greyhound, bringing it home and convincing the family that she should keep it to ensure it was looked after. Her father Brian described his youngest daughter as bright and bubbly, full of fun, good company, and intelligent. 
When Gemma was around 15 years old, she started dating her boyfriend, John, who was two years older. Despite her academic potential, Gemma was 16 years old when she left Kesgrave High School, enrolling at Suffolk College, where she gained qualifications in administration and social health care. The young couple continued dating. Gemma started spending more and more time with John at his flat in Ipswich and less time with her family, with whom she'd once been so close. It wasn't the intensity of young love, but another issue which saw Gemma drifting away from her loved ones. John was a heroin user, and as Gemma spent more time with his friends, she too was soon introduced to the drug. During this time, Gemma had been working at an insurance company, but in 1999, lost her job due to the impact of her heroin use. When Gemma's family became aware that she was using heroin, they attempted to engage her in rehabilitation by arranging her participation in a methadone program, but with little success. When John was imprisoned on two occasions for theft from 2003 to 2004, Gemma returned to live with her family and her health appeared to be turning a corner. But sadly, when John was released, the couple resumed their chaotic living arrangements, moving frequently. Gemma became estranged from her parents for the next couple of years. The only contact Gail had with her daughter was primarily through text messages, which her daughter usually signed off. Quote, Lots of love from Jim. By this stage, deep in the grip of addiction, but unbeknownst to her family, Gemma was supporting herself through street sex work. John was often seen in tow on the nights Gemma was out working, who was known amongst the local community of street sex workers for being well-mannered, trustworthy, and kind. On the evening of November 15, 2006, John dropped 25-year-old Gemma off to work in the red-light district of Ipswich. The pair agreed John would pick her up, later at a specified time. But some hours later, John became concerned when Gemma failed to show up at their agreed meeting place. When police publicly appealed for information, Gemma was reported to have last been seen around 1.15am outside a BMW dealership on West End Road. Other reports were received of sightings of Gemma near London Road and Victoria Street. Days passed with no contact from Gemma or replies to text messages from John, her friends or family. It was unlike Gemma to not return home. Like Tanya Nicole, police found there had been no activity on Gemma's phone after the night she had been last seen. In an effort to ramp up their enquiries, Police distributed 20,000 flyers bearing Tanya and Gemma's photo and descriptions. Officers also set up road checks in the red light district, questioning motorists driving through the area whether they'd seen either woman. Officers also conducted over 1,500 door knock inquiries and requested Hipswich residents complete questionnaires to obtain further information. 176 sites around Ipswich were searched, and over 500 motorists and 2,000 people in total were questioned. But there was little new information of any substance, and only the local media were providing coverage of the women's disappearance. 
Police interviewed 400 people in relation to Tanya's disappearance alone and another 300 in relation to Gemma's. Even though it emerged that the two women were friends, both disappearances were treated at that stage as separate cases. In late 2006, woodlands on the outskirts of Ipswich were recovering from having been in flood due to heavy rains during October and November. The waters of local brooks and streams were receding, but local authorities were monitoring the area to assess damages caused by the flooding, ensuring there were no further issues in the surrounding waterways. On the morning of December 2nd, a water bailiff was conducting an inspection of Belstead Brook near the village of Hintlesham, a 15-minute drive east of Ipswich. As the man's eyes scanned the shallow water, he saw what he first thought was a mannequin lying face down. He waded into the brook to pull it free from the bracken, but as he got closer, he made a horrifying realization. It was the naked body of a young woman which had been partially immersed in the water for some time. Police were unable to immediately identify the woman given the level of decomposition. It was only afterwards the police confirmed it to be the body of Gemma Adams. The post-mortem concluded that Gemma had not been sexually assaulted, but her cause of death couldn't be determined. In terms of forensic evidence, investigators had little to go on. Gemma's body had been dumped in the fresh running water, so the prospect of retrieving any evidence of value from the crime scene was minimal. Her boyfriend John was quickly eliminated as a suspect, so police turned to investigating Gemma's other known associates and clients, but no one jumped out as another possible line of enquiry. Following the shocking discovery of Gemma's body, but still no sign of Tanya Nicole, investigators focused on searching further up and down Belstead Brook. A police dive team trudged through the city's icy cold waters and flood debris for the next six days. Moving from Hintlesham downstream towards Copdock Mill, on December 8th, less than two miles from where Gemma's body was found, police divers discovered Tanya's naked body in water near Copdock. The postmortem revealed that, like Gemma, Tanya hadn't been sexually assaulted, but no firm cause of death could be established, aside from noting that both women had hyperinflated lungs. The crime scene analysis indicated that it was unlikely that Tanya had been deposited where she was found. It was more likely her killer had dumped her closer to where Gemma's body was located and that Tanya's body had been carried downstream by the fast-flowing waters. Like Gemma, it was near impossible to gather any forensic evidence of substance from Tanya or the scene. She too had been laying in the fast-flowing water for some weeks, so any trace evidence present would have been well washed away by this stage. Whoever had dumped either body was organized enough to know that the swiftly running waters of the brook would significantly hamper police efforts to retrieve forensic evidence, with the disappearance now a double murder investigation. The story was picked up by BBC News and began receiving national news coverage. 
Despite the similar circumstances of Gemma and Tanya's disappearance and their bodies being found in close proximity, investigators knew they couldn't jump to conclusions and link the murders without proof. But it wasn't long before police confirmed, quote, obvious similarities between the murders, linking the killings. Suffolk Police, known as Suffolk Constabulary, launched Operation Sumac aiming to ensure no more women went missing, or worse. The lead-up to Christmas meant that the female residents of Ipswich and surrounds were often out and about until late at night. Shoppers and partygoers attending Christmas functions meant there were more people on the street than usual. As news spread around the town about the two unsolved murders, women felt uneasy walking alone at night on the street. Police advised all women not to walk alone if they could help it, and to carry personal alarms in the event they were attacked. In the course of conducting their inquiries, investigators turned to other street sex workers as the people who best knew Tanya and Gemma in a work setting. As far as these women were concerned, an increased police presence in the red light district of Ipswich certainly made them feel safer but it also meant that they often went home empty-handed. As their clientele dropped off, police began trawling through over 16,000 hours of CCTV footage taken in the red light district around the dates of Tanya's and Gemma's disappearances. Hoping for a breakthrough, in an encouraging lead, Tanya was captured by one camera getting into a dark-colored car, but frustratingly, the distance of the vehicle from the camera meant that electronic number plate recognition was impossible. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us, Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately, thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com Obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. Two days later, in the late afternoon of December 10th, a motorist was driving through an area of woodland near the village of Nacton, 10 minutes northwest of Ipswich, when they spotted what they thought was a mannequin off the side of the road. It of course wasn't. By the time police arrived on the scene, the sun had set, and the weather was bitterly cold and windy. The body of the young woman was posed in a cruciform position, 
Her arms splayed wide, and her long hair fanned out behind her, almost like an angel. Despite being left naked and exposed to the elements, she was clean. There were no signs of a struggle or any abrasions on her body. The location of the body so close to the road, it made it clear to police that her killer wanted her to be found. Police initially had no idea who the woman was. No one else had been reported missing. With winter darkness now setting in, investigators made the difficult decision to guard the woman's covered body in situ overnight. This would allow forensics officers to work in full daylight the next day to ensure no evidence was missed at the crime scene. The following day, the victim was initially identified by tattoos on her upper arm. It was 24-year-old Anna Lee Alderton. Anna Lee was born in 1982, one of two children to her parents, Roy and Moira. The couple separated in 1986, and four years later, Anna Lee and her mother moved in the Mediterranean country of Cyprus, where they lived for five years. In 1997, when Anna Lee was 15 years old, mother and daughter returned to Ipswich. Anna Lee attended Copleston High School and performed well academically. Her mother, Moira, later describing her daughter as lively, bright, and intelligent, but it wasn't to last. Anna Lee was already smoking cannabis, and when she was 16 years old, her father, Roy, died from lung cancer. According to the Belfast Telegraph, the teenager started associating with an undesirable crowd and turned to using heroin. Anna Lee was soon engaging in street sex work to support her habit after giving birth to a son when she was around 19 years old. Anna Lee was determined to get her life back on track and participated in drug rehabilitation programs. But despite her best efforts, she returned to using heroin and crack. Anna Lee tended to come and go from living with her mother, who was by now caring for Anna Lee's son. The young woman also had some brushes with the law, being imprisoned twice for theft, but she was remembered by those she met during her incarceration as a kind person. By late 2006, Annalee was living with her boyfriend Sam at his flat in Colchester in the neighboring county of Essex, just over a half-hour drive southwest of Ipswich. On December 3rd, Annalee caught public transport to visit her mother and five-year-old son in Harwich to deliver Christmas gifts. Sam walked Annalee to a nearby bus stop and kissed her goodbye. She told him she'd be home later. When she didn't return... Sam didn't assume anything was amiss, as it wasn't unusual for Anna Lee to not come home for a few days at a time. Sam thought nothing more of it and didn't report it to the police. Anna Lee's post-mortem revealed that, like Gemma Adams and Tanya Nicole, she had hyperinflated lungs. She also had injuries to her neck and lips consistent with neck compression. Tragically, she was also three months pregnant at the time of her murder. Her cause of death was either asphyxiation or strangulation. Annalie's mother, 
corroborated Sam's statement about her daughter's plan to visit the family in Harwich on the day she disappeared. When detectives reviewed CCTV at train stations in the area, Annalee was captured traveling alone on the 5.53 p.m. train from Harwich to Manning Tree. CCTV footage showed her alighting at Manning Tree at 6.15 p.m. before changing trains and arriving at Ipswich at 6.43 p.m. Annalee was captured by cameras in the red light district later that evening. Police expressed grave concerns for the safety of women in Ipswich, warning them to avoid the red light district. Despite the best intentions of law enforcement, this was unrealistic advice for street sex workers. The women indeed feared for their lives, but they felt they had no feasible alternatives to help them access the money they needed to survive, nor were there options available to help them safely exit sex work. There was also a feeling that the police were insinuating that if street sex workers did fall victim to anyone while working, they had no one to blame but themselves. Within 24 hours of discovery of Annalise's body, media coverage of the murders went into overdrive. Reporters from across Britain and the world descended upon Ipswich. A local business announced it was offering a reward of £25,000 for information leading directly to the capture of the killer or killers. Investigators privately had strong suspicions that a serial killer was on the loose. Suffolk had one of the smallest police forces in Britain and was already working at capacity by the time the news of Annalise's murder broke. Investigators were fully aware they were in a race against time before another young woman turned up dead. But the scale of the investigation, in comparison to Suffolk's relatively small police force, meant the county needed to draw on the assistance of other forces across Britain, including Norfolk and Cambridgeshire. And then the unthinkable happened. On December 11th, only a day after Annalise's body was discovered, Suffolk police held a press conference announcing the disappearance of not one, but two more women. 24-year-old Paula Clennell was born in Berwick-upon-Tweed in the county of Northumberland on the Scottish border to her parents Brian and Isabella in 1982. When the couple separated, Paula followed her mother and older sister to Ipswich in 1996, but was eventually placed into temporary foster care. Paula's sister later described her to BBC News as, quote, very soft, a vulnerable person and easily led if she thought she could get a laugh off of it. It was perhaps this quality that saw Paula leave home at age 16, shortly after becoming a user of heroin and crack cocaine. With no qualifications, Paula turned to street sex work and shoplifting to provide for herself. Even robbing her clients of cash, she went on to give birth to three daughters who were sadly removed from Paula's care due to what would become a 500-pound-per-day drug habit. Paula didn't appear to have a fixed address, using numerous ones including that of an older male friend who lived close to Ipswich's red-light district and where Paula often stayed. Paula was shattered that her girls had been taken into state care and wanted to get clean so her daughters could return home. 
In late November 2006, she wrote to her mother, Isabella. Paula was excited about gifts she hoped to purchase for her young daughters, but lamenting being without her girls. Quote, I'm not looking forward to Christmas at all, and you know the reason for that. Christmas will never be the same for me again without the girls. For me, instead of being a happy day of joy and togetherness, it's only a dark, lonely, and depressing day. As it happened, before Paula disappeared, she was interviewed by police in relation to the murder of Tanya Nicole. On December 4th, Paula also spoke anonymously with TV reporter Simon Newton of ITV News about the murder of Tanya and Gemma. Why well, have you decided to come out tonight? Because I need the money. I need the money, you know? Despite the dangers? Well, that has made me a bit wary about getting into cars. There's talk, obviously, that this is a serial killer. This could be yeah. somebody who's killed a number of girls. What, what's the feeling amongst all the girls out here? Well, I mean, I, I don't talk to all of the girls, but, you know, the ones that I do talk to, you know, that, that, is, that is scary. That is scary. On December 10th, Paula had been hanging out at a house in Ipswich for the evening with friends. According to BBC News, she decided to head out for the night to work. She was last seen at around 12.20 a.m. by a friend who coincidentally had also known Gemma Adams. When Paula didn't return home the next day, her male friend reported her missing to police. The second missing woman was 29-year-old Annette Nichols. Born in 1977 to her parents, Johnny and Rosemary, Annette was known as kind, generous, and close to her family. She loved fashion, was fastidious about her appearance, and was someone whom friends often asked for makeup and styling advice. Annette gave birth to a son in mid-late 1990s, and according to the Belfast Telegraph, mother and son lived in council housing in Ipswich where Annette relished motherhood. When her son was still a toddler, Annette moved into a more spacious council housing, her mother, Rosemary, agreed to help out with caring for her grandson. This allowed Annette to complete a trade qualification at Suffolk College in the early 2000s to help her achieve her dream of becoming a beauty therapist. But when Annette's boyfriend introduced her to heroin, she quickly became hooked. Eventually, Annette took to street sex work to found her addiction But like many, she was vulnerable to violence. According to The Guardian, in October 2006, Annette reported to police that a man had sexually assaulted her after dragging her into an alleyway. Thankfully, a man was arrested on November 23rd, and the matter was pending before court. In the lead-up to Christmas 2006, Annette was believed to be staying with a man in Ipswich. On December 8th, Annette was last seen around 9.50 p.m., in Norwich Road, near the Red Light District. In the following days, Rosemary was unable to contact Annette. Concerned about the recent murders of young women, Rosemary contacted the police to report her daughter missing. Investigators and the public alike sadly didn't have to wait long for more news of the missing women. On December 12th, 
Suffolk police announced the discovery of the bodies of two women in Nacton, near the turning off of Levington Village. Southeast of Ipswich, close to where Annalee Alderton's body was found two days earlier. A member of the public walking along Old Felixstowe, a member of the public walking along Old Felixstowe Road, spotted Paula Clennell's naked, crumpled body 20 feet from the main road, amongst thick woodland foliage. A police helicopter with a camera on board dispatched to monitor the scene from the air. But then there was a second gruesome and unexpected discovery. As the camera panned across Paula's crime scene and surrounding countryside, beaming the images back to detectives in the police incident room, it was the naked body of Annette Nichols. She was located the same distance back from the road as Paula's, imposed in the cruciform position with her hair pulled back, just like Anna Lee. At the postmortems, both Paula and Annette were both found to have hyperinflated lungs, which likely indicated that both victims had been strangled. In the case of Paula, it was determined that she had died as a result of neck compression in association with opiate intoxication. But Annette's cause of death was unknown. Neither woman had been sexually assaulted. The Ipswich business, which had originally offered a reward of £25,000, raised it to £50,000. The now-defunct tabloid News of the World also offered an additional £250,000 for information leading to an arrest and conviction of the killer or killers. At this stage of the investigation, the public was incredibly anxious for whoever was responsible to be caught. In one day alone, police received over 2,000 phone calls from members of the public. Police also began checking the whereabouts of nearly 400 registered sex offenders who lived in Suffolk at the time. In the following days, police confirmed via press conference that the bodies of the two women who had been found were in fact Paula and Annette. Police explained that the sites where all five women had been found were believed to be separate to the actual murder scenes and that the victims had been killed at an unknown location. None of their clothing, jewelry, or personal belongings could be found and there was no murder weapon. Tanya Nicole's father, Jim, publicly appealed for information. Quote, Tanya was a lovely daughter. She was a caring, loving, sensitive girl who would never hurt anyone. Unfortunately, drugs took her away into her own secret world, a world that neither of us were aware of. Tanya has been taken by someone who needs to be found. We ask for anyone who knows this person or persons to come forward and contact the police. This is for the families who have lost their daughters, including us. They can't take away our memories. They can't take away our love, our fortitude, our courage. Grieve for our daughters but not unnecessarily. Live your lives through your departed daughters, as they would want to see us move on with our lives and not going around with our heads bowed down. A time for sadness and a time for gladness. A gladness that they belong to us. A gladness of happy times they shared. The joy they brought to us. The thankfulness that they are now at peace. The Guardian reported that sadly for Annette Nichols, the case against the man who was arrested for her sexual assault the previous month was recorded after her murder as undetected. 
Annette's uncle Peter spoke to the killer through the media, quote, Why can't you stop? You've done enough damage for the sake of my family and the families of the other girls. Please just leave this town alone. Please explain to us the reason you have done what you have done. Give us that peace of mind. We need to know. By December 15th, a total of 500 police officers were now working on what had become the biggest manhunt in the history of East England. This included police forces from 25 other British jurisdictions. Police had received 7,300 phone calls and over 1,000 emails from the public. Even though the cause of death for Gemma Adams, Tanya Nichol, and Annette Nichols was undetermined, police believed it was the work of a serial killer. The media capitalized on this, and given that Hannah Lee Alderton and Paula Clennell had both been asphyxiated, media outlets started referring to the killer as the Suffolk Strangler. Investigators persisted in their inquiries. They released CCTV footage of Anna Lee on the evening she disappeared in the hope of generating new leads. They also spoke to passengers at Harwich, Manningtree, and Ipswich train stations where Anna Lee had been seen. A sex worker came forward, stating she saw Anna Lee getting into what looked like a dark blue BMW. Other sightings of Anna Lee placed her at Hanford Road between 10 to 11 p.m. that same night. The East England Daily Times also revealed that Anna Lee failed to attend an appointment with her probation officer on December 4th, which was out of character. The Guardian reported that senior investigators also contacted European Criminal Investigation Organization, Interpol, on the chance that the killer may have been European-based and had returned home via one of Suffolk's port towns. Further appeals for information had now resulted in 12,000 phone calls, with a total of 650 officers from 40 police forces all over Britain now assisting the Suffolk police force. Then, on December 18, 2006, investigators announced a breakthrough. Police had arrested a 37-year-old man on suspicion of murdering five victims. The man's name was withheld by law enforcement, but the media were soon reporting that the suspect was a supermarket employee named Tom Stevens. But I think that about wraps things up for this part. Tune in next time to receive the conclusion to the case. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.